0: Thank you very much choir. Grab your Bibles. You need to be two places this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapters 3 and 4 and in John chapters 1 through 3. Matthew chapters 3 and 4 and John chapters 1 through 3 and if you don't have a Bible grab a pew Bible and if you don't own a Bible take that pew Bible. We we would love for that to be our gift to you The only string that is attached to that is we want you to take it and read it. We want you to take it and and dive into God's Word. We continue our journey through the story. A couple quick announcements that I need to make. Uh, We have a Wednesday evening community group that I lead that studies the story each week. We have been meeting in the Lord-led ladies' classroom. We are relocating to the area outside the new kitchen, the alcove in the Family Life Center. That's where Norma Harold's Sunday school class meets on Sunday mornings now. And uh, I throw that out to let the people that are attending on Wednesday evenings know it. That group meets at 6 p.m. I also throw out that invitation to you if you've not been a part of it. We have nine weeks left of the story. We're in the New Testament. We're going to look at Jesus, then we'll transition to the book of Acts the life of Paul, and we'll end one week with the book of Revelation. It's not too late to jump in for these final nine weeks. We would love for you to join us. And then announcement number two doesn't have a huge effect if you attend first service every week, but our second service time now meets at 10.30. No longer meets at 11, it meets at 10.30. Bible school runs from 9.30 to about ten fifteen, ten twenty, depending on the teacher. So if you have family or friends that attend uh, Uh, Second service, please get the word out. Help us announce that second service now takes place at 1030 each week. Uh, This was a tough week in the life of First Christian Church. It is a day that we have been expecting uh, for some time, unfortunately, but it didn't make it any easier Friday morning when we learned that Merla Hickerson passed away uh, after a very courageous battle with cancer. arrangements uh, are on the screen. The visitation will be at Calvert's Funeral Home on Tuesday evening from 5 to 7, and the funeral will be here at First Christian Church at 11 o'clock on Wednesday morning. Um, So uh, what a special woman, what what a woman of God, and uh, we're going to miss her greatly, but uh, praise the Lord the suffering is no more. So please, uh, please express your love. To the Hickerson family. One other note another longtime member of our church, Nadine Gambrell, passed away late Friday evening, and those funeral arrangements are incomplete. Well, where have we been in 2015 with the story? We started looking at David, and then we looked at Solomon. We looked at how the kingdom divided in two. We studied God's messengers, the prophets. We looked at the fall of Israel and Judah. We looked at life. During the exile, the exceptional faith of Daniel and his his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we studied the return from exile, uh, the repopulation of the promised land. That was a 106-year process. And then we looked at Esther for such a time as this. Last week, in the midst of what we get, like nine inches of snow. We had Christmas in March. Uh, We will never again celebrate Christmas in months like February or March. We're going to do it in July. The next time we do a mid-year celebration, of course, that means it'll probably be 100 degrees and the power will go out. But nonetheless, we had fun. For those of us that were here. And then this week, we really get into kind of the nuts and bolts of Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry begins chapter 23, impacting lives from the very beginning. Uh, I didn't really know what to do with this, uh, this study with chapter 23. There's so much in there. Uh, so I simply decided we're going to read a lot of scripture. Many of these passages will be familiar. I want to give you five portraits of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And we're going to look at Matthew's account, and then we're going to look at John's account. Again, very different accounts. You may realize that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the synoptic gospels. That means they're kind of the same, and, and they leaned on one another. Most people think Mark was written first, and then Matthew and Luke kind of expanded upon Mark's story. But for the most part, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. John is radically different. Um, John's perspective is much more narrative in nature. So we're going to look at Matthew's account, who was one of the disciples, and and John's account, five portraits of the master. And portrait number one is this. We find this in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus submits to baptism. Jesus submits to baptism. We find this account beginning with verse 13 of Matthew chapter 3. The context is we've read before this about John the Baptist And John the Baptist is coming and he's calling people to repent and he is baptizing person after person after person. And the Pharisees arrive and they're not very happy about it. And John, he's not very politically correct. He refers to Israel's religious leaders, I think, as a brood of vipers, is what he calls them. And it's in that context that Jesus arrives and we read the following beginning with verse 13 of Matthew 3. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. If you underline, you might want to underline, fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven opened And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And the key kind of chunk of Scripture to remember from this is that very last phrase there. This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. You may say, why would Jesus need to be baptized? Wasn't John the Baptist correct in saying, Jesus, I'm not baptizing you, you're going to baptize me. This marks the beginning of Jesus' messianic ministry. And by the proclamations that John has made, by the proclamation from heaven following the baptism, there is no doubt to those who are around, Jesus is the one. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. This is Matthew's way of initiating Jesus' public ministry. Don't forget Jesus is 30 years of age at this time. Jesus of Nazareth was probably fairly well known with people in the region. And it's at this point that Matthew is proclaiming. Matthew writes primarily to a Jewish audience. Matthew is trying to prove that Jesus is the Christ to skeptical Jews. And it's right here, this portrait, portrait number one, Matthew is saying, Jesus is the one. For centuries, God's people had longed for hope. God's people had longed for for a Savior, for a Messiah. And Matthew says, he is the one. Portrait one, Jesus submits to baptism. Portrait number two is also found in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus overcomes temptation. And you find the temptation narrative in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, very, very similar. Let's read this account together. Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. There's so much I could go in. This could be a whole sermon in itself, it's been an entire sermon in itself when we've looked at either Matthew chapter 4 or Luke chapter 4, for time's sake this morning, I want to focus primarily on the weapon that Jesus uses to repel the devil because it's a weapon that we have at our disposal as well. Three temptations. The temptation of the physical, the temptation of, of the popularity, and the temptation of power. And all three times, Jesus quotes the Word of God, the book of Deuteronomy, the law. It is written Are you in the Word? Do you know the Word? Is God's Word a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path? Maybe like me, I I remember growing up one of the very first memory verses that uh, Sunday school teachers I had like Joanne Phillips taught me was Psalm 119.11, your Word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. We have an incredible weapon at our disposal, and yet for too many of us, we don't spend time to be, be in the Word, to know the Word, to memorize the Word. I would challenge you, following our time in the story, I know a lot of us are reading now, don't let this be just that thing we did in 2014 and 2015, we read a chapter a week, and it was fun, and it was nice, and, and just move on. Get in the habit of being in the Word, get in the habit of knowing the Word, When I was a Bible college freshman at Lincoln, one of our assignments for Dan Clymer's Life of Christ class was to memorize and to write out exactly all of Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, and Matthew chapter 7. We learned that assignment on syllabus day in August of 1987, and I remember looking over to my roommate saying, what have we gotten ourselves into? Is that possible to memorize all of Matthew chapter 5 and all of Matthew chapter 6? And all of Matthew chapter 7. There were 75 students in that class. And do you realize the vast majority of those students got A's on that project? You know why? Because we studied. A lot. The month of September, we read Matthew chapter 5 a lot. I still remember much of the Sermon on the Mountain. I'm not going to quote it for you today. But I still remember much of it because of that exercise of an entire month trying to memorize Matthew chapter 5. For an entire month trying to memorize Matthew chapter 6. For an entire month trying to memorize Matthew chapter 7. I have a friend who is a, uh, a chaplain, a hospice chaplain. His name is Paul Boatman. And Paul Boatman's father, Russell Boatman, was a legend in Bible college circles. Many of you probably know that name, R- Russell Boatman, if you've been around the church very long. Uh, Russell Boatman passed away several years ago. In the last several years of his life, struggle with Alzheimer's disease to the point that he didn't know his kids much of the time. Didn't know where he was much of the time. But people would say when they went to visit him in the nursing home, he would break out and start quoting Ephesians chapter 1, and he would share all of Ephesians chapter 1. He'd memorized most of the New Testament. And even when he didn't know those who were closest to him, God's Word was hidden in his heart. Will we allow God's Word to minister to us, to use it to repel temptation when it comes our way? Jesus overcomes temptation. It is written. Portrait number three, we need to jump over to the Gospel of John. And portrait three is Jesus calls his first disciples John chapter 1, beginning with verse 35, we see this account. It says, the next day John was there again with two of his disciples. This is John the Baptist. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, Jesus replied, and you will see. And so they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. And it was about the 10th hour. Now, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which translated is Peter. And when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. And then he added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And you can read similar accounts in Luke chapter 5, the calling of, of the first disciples. What I love about this passage, first and foremost, is that just like Andrew, just like Peter, just like James and John and Philip and Nathaniel, we also are called to come and follow after Jesus. We are called to be disciples. But what's extra special from my perspective with the the John account, the John narrative, is the role that Andrew played in the discipleship of his brother Peter. Most people think that the two that are referred to here are Andrew and John. John is the, the author of the Gospel of John. And both went and told their brother and said, he's the one. We found the one. Let's follow Jesus. Peter went on to be the leader of the pack. Peter went on to be probably the, 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 at least the most popular disciple. The most vocal disciple. When we study the book of Acts in mid-April, you'll see a Peter that's on fire for the Lord. Boldly proclaiming the truth of Jesus staring down the Pharisees nose to nose, chin to chin. But at this point, he's nothing when it comes to Jesus. And it's his brother Andrew that says, come on, I found him. I don't want to do this by myself. I don't want to go alone. Is there someone in your life that today is not a follower of Jesus? Is there someone in your life that today is living outside the grace of God? We're here. We're celebrating. We're singing. The choir's blessing us. We're reveling in the grace of God. If there's someone in your life living outside the grace of God, will you keep it to yourself or will you be an ambassador? Will you share the good news? Will you say, come and see Jesus? Portrait number four, John chapter two, Jesus performs his first miracle. Now, if you were to ask a group of non-Christians, what's the Bible say Jesus did, a lot of them are going to come up with miracles. They're going to say, he, according to the Bible, he did miracles. They might not believe that he really did it, but anyone that has any kind of just surface knowledge of the Bible knows that Jesus and miracles kind of go hand in hand. And most of the time, when we think of the miracles of Jesus, we think of the really big ones, the, the raising people from the dead, Lazarus. The curing people of an illness. The the, the casting out of the demons. We're going to find here maybe his most lame miracle. Can I say that? Is that sacrilegious to call it a lame miracle? And it's his very first. And I've always wondered why. Why start with this? If you're Jesus and you want to make a big announcement that I am the one, don't you want to raise someone from the dead? Don't you want to heal a sickness? I mean... Casting out demons? That's pretty cool. That's not what happens here in John chapter 2. Let's read the account together. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, you might want to underline that, because that's a big problem in the first century world when we're celebrating, we're partying, it's a festival and the wine is no more, that's a big problem. They're not running to their local superstore to to buy the big five-liter boxes of wine. That's not happening, okay? So this is a crisis. You may say, is it really a crisis? It's a crisis. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. This is a troubling miracle for many. They struggle with the idea of Jesus making wine, especially when it sounds like people have had way too much to drink already. I think the bottom line for this miracle is simple. Jesus saw a need, and he met that need. He saw a family that was on the verge of being shamed? Imagine if your daughter got married and you threw a party and all your friends were there and suddenly, halfway through the serving of the food, somebody said, no more chicken breasts. No more mashed potatoes. Mark, let's go to the, the, I don't know what's going on here, but let's go to this. Am I on? Okay. All, All the food is gone. How would you feel? You'd be grabbing somebody like me and saying, run to Kentucky Fried Chicken. Get as much chicken as they have. In the first century world, you'd have been shamed. People would have talked about you forever. So is it a, a ludicrous miracle? Is it a crazy miracle? Or is it an announcement that this Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, is radically different from the religious leaders of the day. He's someone that loves people so much, he doesn't even want mom and dad, whose daughter's getting married, to be shamed because they ran out of wine. The takeaway really is in the very last verse. Thus, he revealed his glory. See, Jesus didn't want to do this. Jesus said, my time has not yet come. But Jesus' mother said, please, please. Help my friends. You can do it. Jesus said, okay. Jesus right here is announcing that he cares even for the common people, even for the ordinary people. Portrait four, Jesus performs his first miracle. And then finally, portrait five, this will be very familiar for most of us. John chapter three, Jesus stumps a religious leader, Nicodemus. John 3, verse 1. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with them. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus said, and you do not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus stumps one of Israel's religious geniuses. We don't know a lot about Nicodemus, but we know that it's pretty stunning that he would want a meeting to take place at night. Because he wanted to meet at night, he was going incognito. He was going undercover. He didn't want anyone else to know that he was going to Jesus. When you read this at first, you may think, is Nicodemus trying to set Jesus up? Didn't the Pharisees do that? Yeah, they did. But I don't think that's the case. I think Nicodemus is wrestling in his heart, is he the one or not? Jesus was a huge threat to the religious leaders of the day, they they would eventually have him put to death, thinking that they were literally putting him out to pasture. But Nicodemus right here is truly trying to figure out, is Jesus the one? And the phrase that's going to haunt him, that's going to roll through his heart and his mind for quite some time is the proclamation that Jesus made, you must be born again. You must be born again. And I would say to all of us today, we must be born again. We must be willing to let go of our sinful nature. We must be willing to let go of the earthly desires and truly be born again and truly follow after Jesus. Nicodemus, the rest of the story is a great story. I'm not going to share it with you this morning. But if you want to know the rest of the story, read the end of John chapter 7 and then read the end of John chapter 19. You might not believe the rest of the Nicodemus story. Five portraits of Jesus. So what do we do with this? Most of us, we've read these passages of scripture. We've heard these stories before. I want to try to summarize, try to sync it all together together. And leave you with three takeaways. And number one is this. See that Jesus was willing to submit. And our lives, if we're followers of Jesus, should reflect humble submission as well. Jesus submitted to baptism even though he was without sin. Jesus submitted to temptation even though he was without sin. He, he overcame with flying colors. Jesus submitted to his mother and performed what seemed like a meaningless miracle simply because he loved his mother, simply because he didn't want a family to be put to shame. That's submission. Our lives should reflect humble submission as well. Number two, Jesus allowed the truth of God's word to guide and to lead his ministry. We have to be a people of the book as well. When temptation came his way, Jesus knew the word. When Jesus encountered um, those who were seeking him uh, like disciples to be or religious leaders of the day that wanted to discredit him. Jesus from the very beginning was a man of the word. He knew the word. We need to be a people of the book as well. But let me distinguish something here. There's a difference between knowing the word of God and living the word of God. James 1.22 Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. We must be a people of the book. And then finally, number three, Jesus stretched others beyond their comfort zone. Christ followers cannot settle for comfortable. We can't settle for comfortable. If you find yourself this morning and you say, I'm I'm a pretty comfortable Christian. I'm in a groove. Life is good and you're not really being stretched. I just ask you to consider the question is that good or do you have more to give do you have more to share do you have more to offer are there people literally waiting to hear the best news that's ever been shared what is that news that's our bottom line God so loved the world he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life And next week's going to be an awesome week at First Christian Church. Samuel Green is going to be preaching his first sermon, not his first sermon ever, but his first sermon on Sunday morning here at FCC. We're going to be looking at chapter 24, No Ordinary Man. There's the scriptures we'll be studying. We'll be looking at the Sermon on the Mount several other scriptures as well. I really hope you'll be with us and you'll encourage Samuel as he brings the word. Let's pray. God, thank you for today and for the chance to be in your word, to study your word to read a a large chunk of scripture today, five pictures of Jesus. Help us to to not just be people who, who read the word or even know the word, but to be people that live the word in our lives. We love you so much. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. It is invitation time as it is each week at our church. If you have a decision to make for Jesus, I'm up front. I'd love to talk with you about that. If you would like someone to pray with you, I'll be up front and I'd be honored to pray with you this morning as we stand and Mark leads us in our song of commitment.